Well, happy Mother's Day. Um, we're not, uh, I'm not doing a specific sermon on motherhood this morning, and that don't take that to mean that I'm flippant about mothers in general. Um, we, uh, we're just going to continue in Genesis, but, uh, you know, I was just reading uh, a book the last couple weeks that um, just mentioned how a mother is the primary and the most significant relationship in a newborn baby's life. And that that social relationship, even though they're not talking to one another per se, not communicating uh, vocally back and forth, but that relationship um, defines and shapes that child um, just in unfathomable ways. And so uh, obviously uh, mothers are significant and important and valuable um, and uh, want to celebrate them. So I hope you will do that today um, with uh, any mothers involved in your life. Um, but that's not where we're going to be in the text this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, um, at some point in life, uh, most people will wrestle with the big questions. Um, maybe when I say that phrase, the big questions, something comes to mind. Um, maybe certain questions in particular. But, you know, when we think about the big questions, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a, just a minute here, but... When we think about the big questions in America, we don't seem to have public conversations about those big questions very well. Um, unfortunately, most public conversations devolve into screaming nowadays anyway, um, but we don't really tend to talk about the big questions and have thoughtful uh, discussions on the big questions very well. Um, I'm a fan of most things British, um, you know, except maybe the royal family, which I guess that's the quintessential British thing. But um, in the UK, they have a television show called The Big Questions. And this show has been running for years, and they bring in people from different religions, different perspectives, and they have a, an open discussion and debate about some of these big questions of life, questions related to meaning, to purpose, and to existence. And so two of the most gigantic, the most important questions that we can ask and wrestle with are, who am I and why am I here? And those are questions of identity, who am I, and purpose. What am I here for? Why am I here? Now, I said just a second ago, we don't do a great job of discussing those in public in America but that doesn't mean that people are not thinking about those questions and the answers to those questions. And in reality, you can't avoid those questions ultimately. You really can't just push them out of mind and not deal with them. Um, even if you don't think you're answering those questions, if you're not articulating it in a clear, concise way, Everyone is living out of how they answer those questions. You are living out an identity, and you are living some sense of purpose out in your life. You're pursuing something, some sort of meaning with your life, even if you would say, well, there is no meaning for life. You're not really living that way in reality. And of course, identity is a huge topic of discussion nowadays. Everyone wants to understand their own personal identity, and everybody feels the need for a sense of purpose. We want to have meaning to what we do and how we live. We don't want to be useless. Nobody wants to be useless. 
Now, obviously, as believers, we want to ground our sense of identity and our sense of purpose in the Word of God, in the clear teaching of the Bible, because we believe that the Bible is true. It gives us the accurate picture of reality. This is how things are, and so we want to understand that, have that shape the way we think and the way we feel, and then live out of what we find in the Bible, the answers to these questions that we find here. And so I think you can find very clear answers to those questions, who am I, why am I here, in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, you know how it typically goes uh, on Sundays. I typically give you a, uh, you know, four ways or three, you know, methods or whatever, but I'm not going to do that this morning, so you're going to have to pay a little careful, extra careful attention. But I am going to give you a sentence that summarizes what we're going to look at in these verses, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then we're going to go back and sort of break down that sentence into pieces and pull it all together at the end, all right? So here's the summary of what we're going to look at this morning. When we think about identity and about purpose, the crown of creation and I'll define who that crown is in a minute. The crown of creation, the apex of creation, has a calling for creation, an assignment, a sense of purpose for creation. And ultimately, when that crown fulfills the sense of purpose or the calling for creation, the assignment that that crown has, it magnifies the Lord of creation. So the crown of creation has a calling for creation that magnifies the Lord of creation. That's what we're going to see here. So the way we're going to do this is ask a couple of questions this morning. The first one has to do with that first part of that phrase, who is the crown of creation? So if you weren't here with us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the last couple of weeks' messages because they're both taken from Genesis chapter 1. But last week in particular, we started with chapter 1 and verse 3 and went all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, and sort of gave you an overview of the entire creation account, all seven days of creation. This week, we want to narrow in on the last day of creation on day 6. On day 7, God rested. But we want to narrow in on the last part of day 6, verses 26 to 28, and the creation of mankind. When you get to verse 26, I told you last week there's a rhythm to the creation account. Each of the days has the same language to it. it. talks about God saying and it actually happening. There's several elements that are there that are rhythmic in the creation account. But when you get to verse 26 and the creation of man, everything sort of shifts at this point. And now you see God talking to himself and saying, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so things are obviously, this is to be highlighted in the passage. This is, everything in the creation account is building toward this. And then when you get to this section of the creation account, now you've got more words being used to describe the creation of man here. The author sort of slows down and gives you a much fuller and bigger picture of the creation of man. The whole week has led to this. This is the climax. This is the crown of creation, the most important part of creation. I mean, you can even see this when you get into chapter 2. We stopped last week in verse 3, but if you flip over to chapter 2, we'll look at this in total next week, 
chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 25, the end of the chapter. But that whole section deals with the creation of man. And it's, it's not another creation account, but it's a complementary creation account. So what you've got is, in chapter 1, you've got the 30,000-foot Google view of creation, and you can see the whole thing, the whole scope of it, with a special emphasis on mankind. And then you get into chapter 2, and now Moses has zoomed in on the street level, and he's showing you what actually took place on day 6 when God created human beings. It's the climax of creation. This is the most important part. And so Moses is going to circle back around and he's going to describe that creation of the most important part of, of the world. So in all the orderliness and all the beauty of creation, it may surprise you to know that human beings are the masterpiece, the crown, the climax of creation. Now, I don't say that this morning to sort of build up your ego. But it is what the biblical text says. We are the crown of creation, and that certainly places a, a great deal of emphasis on human beings and on our role in God's world. And so we see that from the way the text leads to the creation of man. We see it from the language used, let us make man. We see it from the number of words. But there's a way that God specifically describes human beings that help us to understand how important we are in the world. Look at verse 26, at the particular words that he uses. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Humans are made in the image and likeness of God. Nothing else in creation is described this way as being made after God's image and likeness. Now, in the ancient world, kings, royalty, were viewed as made in the image, as reflecting the God whom they served. The king was a representative of the God, and he ruled over the realm that he ruled over as the representative of that particular deity, of that God. But here in Genesis, it's not just royalty who are made, not just kings who are made in the image of God, it's every human being. Every human being is made in God's image. And because of that, every single human being has inherent worth and inherent value. And you see this fleshed out in Scripture with how important human beings are and how valuable the life of a single human being is. Listen to a couple of passages that explain this to us. Genesis 9, after the flood, God is talking to Noah, kind of re-giving him a covenant with creation here. And obviously this is after the fall, and so there will be death. But look what he says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why is that? Why, when you take the life of another human being here, should your life be taken? For God made man in his own image. It is a significant thing to take the life of another human being because each and every human being is valuable and has inherent worth and is made in the image of God. 
Now, certainly we know this applies to the way we treat human beings regarding life and death, but look at what James says about being made in the image of God. This is, of course, a passage on the importance of our words and on the tongue. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That James sees mocking and cursing another human being as a shocking display. Why? Because Each and every human being is made in the image of God. Mocking and cursing another human being is not appropriate because human beings are made to reflect God. They're made in the image of God. Now, that would certainly change the way we talk to and about other people if we really took this to heart and believed what God said here about the importance of being made in the image of God. Now, when you think about this, this has all sorts of ethical ramifications for issues that we face today, doesn't it? I mean, this affects a lot about how we deal with people and how we think about people. A couple of examples of that. Abortion, we believe abortion is the taking of a human life, a life that is made and created in the image of God. And that life has inherent worth and inherent value, and so it is wrong to take the life of someone who is made in God's image. Any sort of racism, white supremacy is a big word being thrown around today, any sort of racism or racial superiority is inherently wrong. It is inherently sinful. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God and has dignity and worth and value. And that works itself out even to something as mundane as how we talk to one another. We have to think about how each and every person is made in the image of God. And so, of course, I think we all know and understand that there are ramifications for the fact that people are made in the image of God. But the question that we always ask here is, okay, I know that it's important that people are made in the image of God, but what does it actually mean? to be made in the image of God. What does it actually mean? Well, if you start to read on this, there have been so many different explanations. I could bore you all day with all of these different explanations of what it means to be made in the image of God. Let me just give you a couple here to to help you understand, and maybe you've heard some of these before. The most common one that I've heard is that human beings are rational. We're thinking beings, and that's what separates us from animals, and so that is what it means to be made in the image of God. Maybe you've heard that being made in the image of God means we share certain qualities or certain characteristics with God. God is loving, therefore you and I can love. God is just, therefore we value justice. We long for justice. And there's all sorts of other explanations for what it means to be made in the image of God. The reality is that this passage doesn't really tell us. (laughs) Sorry. It doesn't really tell us. It certainly doesn't indicate it means that we're thinking beings like God thinks, and so that's what it means to be made in the image of God. It doesn't even really indicate that we share certain characteristics with God, and so that's what it means. It really doesn't tell us what it means to be made in the image of God. To understand that, we have to look at the whole of Scripture 
and flesh that out with the whole of Scripture. But the fact that we're made in God's image does tell us several important things about our identity and who we are. And I want to try to work those out. And I think this will help you to get a better understanding of what it means to be made in God's image. And as you think about being made in God's image, that will help you to understand who you are. It will give you a sense of identity and meaning for life. Just think for a second about that word image. What is an image? An image is dependent on an original. An image is a reflection of an original. You see this throughout Scripture with idols. They are meant to represent the God that they're made in that God's image. Something that is an image is always a copy of something else. It's dependent on the original. A model car depends on the original for its shape and for your recognition of what it is. It's dependent on the original. A mirror reflects, it shows an image of something else, whatever you put in front of it. And so I think that reflecting capacity, that imaging capacity, is very important for us to understand who we are as human beings. One author said it this way, human identity, who we are as humans, is rooted in what it reflects. So we tend to think about our identity in terms of who we are, but really we should be thinking outside of ourselves and defining ourselves by what we reflect, by what shows up when you hold the mirror of ourselves up. We always tend to reflect other things. We tend to copy other things, don't we? You can see this in small ways all around you. You can see this with small children. Our youngest, Gray, is two years old right now. And Gray is growing in his understanding of the world. He's exploring the world very quickly and very aggressively. And one of the main ways that he understands how to function in the world is by copying other people, by copying his siblings, by copying what Bethany and I do. And don't think that you get past this when you become an adult. You all copy home decor from others. You copy fashion styles from others. You see it, you like it, and you copy it. It's what we do. Friends tend to talk the way their friends talk. It's our natural capacity as images that we reflect and that we find our sense of who we are in what we reflect. And so what this tells us about us and our identity is we can only make sense of ourselves as image bearers, as copies of the original. And so what does this mean? This means that we can only be who we were made to be in relationship with God because he's the original and we are the copies of him. We can only be who we were meant to be as a reflection of him. Our hearts were made to worship him, to know him, to have to do with him, to be in a covenantal relationship with him. We were made to find identity and meaning and purpose in our relationship with God as reflections of him. We're dependent on him. So human beings, you and I, are only the crown of creation because... 
we point away from ourselves to the original. Think of humans as little arrows, and we're always pointing somewhere, and the intention is that we would be pointing to the triune God, away from self, and to his magnificent glory. Now, we'll get to the fall later on, but there's a significant problem that comes into play in the biblical story. Sometimes, all the time now, what happens is that arrow turns from being focused on God and from turning attention from ourselves to God, and it turns to something else. And so because we're made to image, we're made to reflect, we're made to find our identity and our purpose in something else, all of a sudden now we turn that arrow to focus on some aspect of creation and we pursue our sense of identity in that. We pursue our sense of satisfaction and meaning and purpose in some element of creation rather than God. And what is that called? It's called idolatry. The Bible speaks at length about the sin of idolatry. Basically, the Old Testament is the story of Israel pursuing idolatry. Rather than finding their meaning, their purpose, and their satisfaction in reflecting God, now all of a sudden they turn their attention to something else, and they pursue something else. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? You'll have no other gods before me. And it's the first of the Ten Commandments because this is the primary thing. Where is your sense of identity and purpose aimed? Who is it aimed at? You were made for it to be aimed at God, but after the fall, we all shift it to other things. And we try to find our sense of identity and purpose in something else. Tim Keller has a book on idolatry, and he defines idolatry this way. I thought this was helpful. Taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your life on it. Taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your life on it. Finding everything about who you are and your sense of purpose and worth in that thing rather than in God. So what happens when you do that? What happens when you and I edge toward idolatry and we begin to point the arrow toward some, some element of creation? Well, there's a couple things that I want to identify this morning to try to help you with idolatry. First of all, what happens when you pursue something else? The first thing that happens is that search for meaning and for identity will fail. It's not going to come through for you with satisfaction and with joy. When our natural human identity as a mirror reflects something else, we won't be filled with satisfaction. Created things are not thick enough. They're not strong enough. They're not made to hold a human sense of identity and purpose. And so they crack and they crumble under that. They can't follow through. So we inevitably lose meaning and joy. The second thing that happens, though, to me is the most scary. And maybe you've never thought of this before. But if you're really made to reflect and to image something else, then when you point your arrow towards something other than God, now you begin to resemble 
the idol that you are worshiping. And you begin to be shaped by that idol and you begin to become like that idol. That's a scary proposition. And so, you shall have no other gods before me is a command and it's tragic enough that you would worship something other than God because he deserves worship. But at the heart of that is a warning that when you worship something other than God, you will be shaped by that other thing. And you will find your identity and purpose in that other thing, and it will destroy who you are. It cannot hold the weight of human identity and purpose. And you will begin to be changed by trying to find your identity in something other than God. Listen to how the psalmist describes this in Psalm 115. You don't have to turn over there, but I'll read it to you. Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then listen to this warning. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What does God say about Israel? They, they, they can't see. They can't hear my word. Their ears are thick. It's like they're clogged up. Why is that? Because they worship these idols. They're stubborn like a calf. Well, they worship the golden calf. They've become like the very thing that they worshiped. One author put it this way, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, what you worship, what you put the weight of your life on, you end up being shaped by and you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. When it's Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, then you are restored to what it truly means to live and find your true sense of identity and purpose where it was made to be. But when it's some element of creation, it's for ruin. So a couple of examples of this. Think about money. So many people have the idol of money nowadays, and they worship money and things so what happens when you begin to do that, when your heart is drawn to money and you put ultimate worth and meaning in money? Well, now you begin to treat everything as a financial transaction. Your whole life is shaped as if it's one commodity for another commodity. Even relationships end up like this. You only value people when they can give you something, when you give them time and they return that time with something that you want. Everyone becomes like money, you begin to see all of life through the lens of a consumer. When you idolize sex, you begin to define yourself and others in terms of sex. People become objects. Your character is formed by the idol of sex to see the world in a certain way. When you worship the approval of other people, when all that matters to you, the most important thing, when you find your sense of identity and how other people think of you, then you define every relationship in terms of earning and keeping approval. 
And so then your disposition, the way you walk through the world without you even realizing it, is formed by that desire. And soon that desire is overwhelming and it shapes your entire reality. So now you're like a fish in water that doesn't even know it's swimming in water. It's just how you go through life. Needing the approval of other people and treating other people according to that desire and that idol. So let me ask you this morning, as we think about the crown of creation and who we are as image bearers, as reflectors, what's your sense of identity this morning? How do you define yourself? What's the most important thing about who you are? Are you looking to some created thing to give you meaning in life? Is it money? Is it work? Is it pleasure? Our culture is filled with people who are searching for their identity, and they're searching in all the wrong places, and then they're being shaped by those idols, by all the places that they're searching. And so as the crown of creation, you and I are made to reflect God. We're made to image him. We're made to find our sense of meaning and identity in him. And when we do that, there's a calling that he has for human beings on this earth. So let me remind you of this sentence. The crown of creation, the ones who image him, who represent him, have a calling for creation that magnifies the Lord of creation. So we've looked at what the crown is. It's human beings reflecting God, finding meaning and identity in him. So let's ask, what calling does the crown, does he have? What calling does he have? Look at chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So there's his identity. He's the crown of creation. He's made in the image of God as a royal representative of God. And then here's a summary of his task, verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the task that that human beings have here that God gave us originally is given to us because we are the crown of creation, because we are royalty in God's eyes. This verse should read like this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness so that he may have dominion. Because we are made in God's image, because we reflect him, Therefore, we can rule over creation and have dominion over creation. So verse 26 gives you a summary of this task. The calling is to take dominion, to rule in God's stead. And then verse 27 sort of slows down into poetry. It's like the author's going, okay, you need to, you need to think about this a little bit. I've told you that you, who you are, and I've told you what your task is, and now I want you to stop And I want you to think about what that means for a moment here. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Royal reflectors of God, male and female, he created them. So you can see twice here, we're mentioned as the image of God, representatives of God, and then Being made in the image of God, he created both men and women. Both men and women are made in the image of God, 
And both men and women are given this task here. They can only accomplish this task together. So what specifically is the calling? What's the task? Look at verse 28. Here it's explained in a little bit more detail. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you can see here at the beginning of verse 28, after God blesses them, there are five commands that are given to human beings. Track with me here. This will be, I think it'll get really clear at the end of this explanation, all right? We're building up to it. There are five commands here. They're kind of, they kind of come in two sets. Let me put them on the screen to help you with this, all right? There's two overarching commands. Multiply by children, and you can see the three commands that make up that basic idea, that basic task. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then the second part of this calling of mankind is to rule over creation. Subdue the earth and take dominion there. So there's two aspects to this calling that we have here. And if you go back to verse 27, 27 gives you the basis for how these things are to be done. Why can we rule over creation? Because we're made in the image of God. How can human beings multiply by children? Because they're made male and female in the image of God. And so they can fill the earth and they can multiply and represent God on the earth. Now, if you notice in verse 28, it begins with God's blessing on this calling, on these tasks. So this may, this may seem somewhat mundane to you and I when we read this. Okay, fine. Have kids rule over the earth. But this is exactly what God has put us here to do. This is the original calling that he had for Adam and Eve. And he's blessing it and saying, this is good. This is what I want you to do. All of this is according to God's overseeing hand and his purposes. So to summarize, the calling of human beings, we would say human beings are to work together, male and female, to fill the earth with image bearers, with reflections of God, and take dominion over creation and make the entire earth a dwelling place for God to dwell with mankind. Remember last week we talked about how creation is like a temple, and day seven told us that God was resting with man in that temple? That's the ultimate end. And so human beings are to multiply, fill the earth, take dominion over the earth, and ultimately make it a place for God to dwell with man, mankind. So some of the implications of this. First of all, so what calling does God have? We are called to be social beings, all right? We're made to live together. We don't do this on our own. God made human beings male and female. Both are necessary. Both bring complementary roles to this task of filling the earth. Being male and female is rooted in who we are. It's not a psychological state. It's not something you choose. It's hardwired into your identity as an image bearer. It's written in every cell in your body. It's part of who we are. To understand who you are, you have to understand your gender, your, your, the givenness of that. 
And so, of course, when you see this here and God says, be fruitful and multiply, you start with one man and one woman, but they're going to multiply and fill the earth so there'll be more human beings spreading out over the world. And the implication is they have to live together and work together to accomplish this. They have to organize themselves into societies and into cultures to accomplish God's mission for the world. And so every sphere of social life is wrapped up in this calling here to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We live in an individualized culture. We think individually, but God has made us to live together. This goes from the family unit all the way to politics. Politics is just basically the art of trying to live together. That's what it is. And so God says to truly flourish, to truly live well, to fulfill this mission, you have to live as social beings and work together. And that has massive implications for our daily lives. Secondly, what calling do we have? Rule creation by work. Now, I don't know how you think of work and the job that you do, but work is very significant in God's plans for us. Notice verse 28. God gave them two commands related to taking rulership over the earth. Subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. Both of those words describe royal authority, kingly authority. And it's not just the animals here. They're to rule over the earth, the elements of creation. It's not talking about a hostile takeover. It's describing benevolent authority, ruling over the world, patterned after God's work. So what does God's work look like? Well, if you remember, God started with the earth being void and without form, and what did he do? He made it beautiful, and he brought order to it, and he filled it out in the days of creation. The first three days are him making the canvas. The second three days are him painting on the canvas. And so it becomes more and more ordered and more and more constructed as you go along. And that's what our work is supposed to do. Think of the work that a gardener does. What does a gardener do? A gardener cultivates the earth. He puts flowers next to other plants where they will flourish and they will do well. He arranges things. He knows the best time to plant daffodils. I have no idea when that is. But the gardener cultivates and develops the raw materials of creation to produce beauty and flourishing. And that's, I think, what God is commanding human beings to do here in their work. I mean, that's literally the task that God has for us. But it goes far beyond gardening. I mean, you see Adam as a gardener at the beginning in chapter 2, but this extends out to every sort of work imaginable. Tim Keller described or defined work this way. It is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Think about the job that you are going to do tomorrow. It's what God put you here to do, and he put you here to do this. Ultimately, all work is this. It's rearranging 
the raw material of God's creation in a way that helps people to thrive and to flourish. It's serving others. Think about all the different spheres of work, farming, music. What are you doing in music? You're rearranging notes and rhythm, and you're putting them in it together in a way that's beautiful. Medicine, manufacturing. I mean, think about the car you drove here this morning. What is it? It's basically steel and rubber, but it's been organized and put together in a way through a manufacturing process that someone came up with that allows people to be well-served by that work. God put us here to bring order and beauty to the world through our work. So your job is not just something you do to get from Sunday to Sunday and so that you can have a paycheck to support missions. It's not all we can boil work down to. A Christian work ethic is not just working hard. A Christian work ethic understands this, that you are serving people by using creation to make lives better and to take dominion over the earth. That's what our work is. The last implication of this, we'll wrap up here in a second, is that our calling through living together, ruling over creation by our work, ultimately it magnifies God. We were made as image bearers to live in covenant relationship with God. And so all of our social relationships, all of our work, everything that we're doing has to be rightly ordered to him to bring him honor and glory, to magnify him. And that brings us back to our sentence. The crown of creation has a calling for creation that magnifies the Lord of creation. This is what we were put here to do. It's through human beings living out our identity and our purpose that God is magnified. Now, we'll continue to flesh this out and look at this in more detail in Genesis chapter 2. And then obviously everything changes in some ways, in significant ways, in Genesis chapter 3. But hopefully this is helpful to you as you go about your job to understand the bigger picture of who you are as a reflecting being and what you're put here to do to fill the earth, to live with one another, and to work for God's honor and glory, all for his magnification. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that we get to be image bearers, that we get to reflect you. What a privilege that is. I pray that we would live up to that position is the crown of creation. I pray that we would live out our calling to live together, to fill the earth, to work for your honor and glory, all so that you can be magnified. We thank you for who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.